several weeks ago, Pastor was gone, and there was a possibility he wasn't going to be back uh, on the 31st, and so I began preparing a couple of more messages to, to cover for him. One of them is the message I'm going to preach tonight, which is entitled, In the Garden. And the other one was a message I, I um, entitled, I Surrender All. And I finished that message, I Surrender All, today. And I finished it at about 4 o'clock, and I wanted to preach it. So I didn't know it. At first, I was thinking about changing tonight, but uh, we'd already printed everything, and every, you know the PowerPoint was made, so I said, well... I'm not going to second-guess myself. I'll go ahead and stay with our message tonight in the garden. And uh, so take your Bibles with me, if you would. Please turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to read uh, beginning at verse 32. I'm not going to read all the way to verse 50, um, but I'm going to begin reading at verse number 32 of Mark chapter 14. If you'll please stand with me in respect for God as we read his word. I'll begin reading at verse number 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and saith to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time we have together tonight. Lord, we're so amazed when we realize that the Creator God loves us. We're so humbled when we consider your mercy and your grace. And tonight, Lord, as we gather in this place, I pray that your Holy Spirit will will enlighten us, will teach us, will strengthen us. And will guide us into all truth as, as, he's, as you have called him to do. Thank you for this time. Thank you for those that are here. I pray you'd bless all these things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I love gardens. I, I really do. I love gardens. I love, I love vegetable gardens. I love flower gardens. When I was a child, I would help my father work in the vegetable garden in our backyard. And we would grow okra. I don't know how many of you like okra, but I love okra. We would grow okra. We would grow uh, bell peppers. We would grow green beans, and we'd grow tomatoes and all those good things. And my father could grow just about anything he set his mind to grow. He'd grow watermelons. He, he'd grow cantaloupes and all these many things. In fact, he still does in his backyard. It's much smaller now, but he still has a, a garden. How many of you have ever heard of a person referred to as having a green thumb. Any of you ever heard someone say, man, that that guy has a green thumb? Well, when you're speaking of me, that would not be the case. Everything I touch involving plant life will die within days or weeks. I have a black thumb. Several years ago, my wife got the bright idea that she wanted flowers. And being the energetic, loving husband I am, I said, okay, Let's do it. She said, we are going to, I want you to focus on that word, we. She said, we are going to plant some flowers. So we went to Walmart, and we did do that. And we picked out a bunch of flowers, and we did do that. And we we paid for them, and we did do that. And we brought them home, and we did do that. But that's where we stopped. And uh, I spent several hours on that Saturday on my hands and knees pulling, pulling out all types of 
vines and things that were there, and, and we had a beautiful little water fountain, and she patiently sat on that chair and directed me where to place each flower in the garden. And we planted the flowers, and it was beautiful. That Monday morning when I got up to go to work, I walked outside, and the only thing left were stems. And I was shocked. And I told her, I said, someone came and cut all of the flowers out of our garden. And it wasn't until a a day or so later I found out it was slugs eating my flowers. I didn't know slugs ate flowers. I didn't know snails ate flowers. I was shocked. So I'm not much of a gardener by any means. But this evening I'm not going to preach about a garden in the sense of planting and growing. Tonight I, I want to take a few moments and spend a little time in the Garden of Gethsemane with our Savior. Um, Actually, Gary was nice enough to provide me with some photos. Corey, if you'll bring up the first slide. These are actual photos of the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, as I was preparing this message and and studying, I I looked at these photos often because I wanted to get a sense. And I wished I I could be there and and, and walk in that garden and, 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 and be there to experience that. But I wanted to have a sense of what we're doing. I think there's one more. Yeah, there is another one there. And it's a beautiful garden, isn't it? And uh, just a beautiful place. I would like to, if you would allow me tonight, the liberty to make some observations from the, these moments in history as recorded in the Word of God. So much took place in the, in the few hours that our Lord tarried in this garden. Certainly, it would take many messages to fully expound upon every verse, every moment. However, this evening, what I would like to do is just share with you the things, as I studied this, this passage of Scripture that jumped out at me, the things that, that God shared with me so I can share with you. So tonight, we're going to take a stroll through this garden, and we're going to spend a little time with the Lord in Gethsemane. First tonight, the thing that, that comes out at me, and I want us to see, is the sagacity of the Lord. The sagacity of the Lord. Now... Somehow, some years ago, somebody got the idea that all of the points in your message have to start with the same letter. And so I spent quite a while finding a word that would start with S that would fit my meaning here. And, uh, but anyway, that's the word I came up with. And the word sagacity means discernment. It, it, it means discernment. So look with me at, at verse 32 again, if you would. And we see here, it says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here, while I shall pray. Now, again, I'm I'm referring here to the discernment of the Lord. And I want you to notice that when the Lord arrived at this garden, he didn't bring all of his disciples with him. Matter of fact, the next verse tells us that he brought only three. Peter, James, and John. He left the other uh, disciples there. Jesus knew his disciples. He had knowledge, intimate knowledge of his disciples. And he knew their strengths, and he knew their weaknesses. Jesus knew that not all of his disciples could bear up under the burden of seeing him in such sorrow and distress. Seeing him in the mental anguish that he was facing due to the physical suffering that he would endure in just a few short hours the cruel and the physical horror of crucifixion. Remember, while Jesus was completely God, he did take upon him the form of flesh, not its nature, 
but certainly its physiological characteristics. From Scripture, we, we see that Jesus hungered in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. He grew tired. We, we see this in John chapter 4 and verse 6. As we read, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. He thirsted. In John chapter 4 and verse 7, we see, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. From Scripture, we know that Jesus felt sorrow. In John chapter 11 and verse 33, we read, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came out with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And from Scripture, we see from the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus wept in John chapter 11 and verse 35. So, as we consider this, it is reasonable to assume that Jesus, in his flesh, was anguished over the great suffering that awaited him. And that he did not want to subject all of his disciples to see him in such agony. I'm sure some of you parents can relate to that. Sometimes when you're when you're sor- sor- deeply sorry about something or when you're deeply troubled about something, you, you don't want to involve your children in that. You don't want to expose your children to something such as that because it, it can be very disturbing to them. So we shelter sometimes. We shelter our loved ones from those emotions and those states. We don't want them to see us in those things. And, and here we see that is what's happening with the Lord. He, he tells some of his disciples, you wait here. And he takes James and John and Peter with him. The Lord knew his disciples. And the Lord knew what they could and could not handle. And God also knows you today. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, remember we read, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Jesus knows us today. He knows what is in your heart tonight. In Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 3, Jeremiah writes, But thou, O Lord, knowest me, thou hast seen me, and tried my heart toward thee. God knows your heart, and he knows what you can and cannot handle. You know, we like to think that we can handle everything, but we can't handle everything. Uh, There are some things we're going to encounter and face in life that we just don't have the emotional or physiological strength to handle. And God knows this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, we read, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And just as God was concerned for his disciples in the garden... He is also concerned for you and me today. The things that he allows in our lives are there to help us. They're there to teach us. They're there to strengthen us. Never are they there to destroy us. God does not desire to to destroy his children. God desires to strengthen his children. In Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 9, we read, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord 
is my God. And God doesn't desire tonight to destroy us. The trials that we face, the sorrows and the heartaches that come into our lives are are designed to remove the dross, to remove the sin from our lives. They're designed to purify us. They're designed to mold us into the image of his son. And we can rest in this truth that God is caring for us. So tonight, whatever you may be going through in your life, whatever you may be facing, we can have the confidence to know that God cares for us and that he will never allow things to happen to us that will destroy us but strengthen us. Now, sometimes the Lord's will may be that we go through the valley of the shadow of death, but do we really die? Of course we don't. We live eternally in his presence. Those of our loved ones who, in this church that have gone before us, we rejoice tonight in the fact that they are alive and we will see them again. There's no sorrow. There's no, there's no hopelessness. So God, uh, we see the discernment of the Lord, the sagacity of God. But secondly tonight, I also, as we study this section of Scripture in the garden, we see the sorrow of the Lord. Look with me at verses 33 and 34 of Mark chapter 14. We read here, And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3 we read, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. I see here that the Lord is extremely sorrowful, and and I, I, if you allow me, will even venture to say, I believe he was sorrowful for more than, than the suffering he was about to face, but he was also sorrowful for the trial and test that his disciples would now be going through. And, I, and I'm sure that today in our society, the Lord is sorrowed. He is sorrowed by some of the things that, that we must face because of the decay of our society today. These are piercing words that we read in Isaiah. Isaiah said he is despised. And the same is true today, is it not? Our government, our schools, our society... All despise Jesus. I arrived here this morning, and uh, there on the front door of our church were some eggs were thrown on the church. And Mrs. Sharon cleaned them up, and, and, uh, but, but people despise Jesus. They're tolerant today of, of everything but Jesus, aren't they? They're tolerant of Allah. Oh, we, we have to respect those who believe in Allah. And they're tolerant of Buddha. And they're tolerant of Muhammad. They're willing to, today, they're willing to allow an Islamic mosque be built on the site of the greatest slaughter of innocent lives by Islamic extremists in modern history. They're they're tolerant of that, aren't they? They're tolerant, today, of the manifesto of the secular humanists in our public schools. An agenda which attempts to remove God from every aspect of a person's life. But all the while, Jesus is despised. But not only did Isaiah say that Jesus would be despised, but 
notice he also said that Jesus would be rejected of men. And all across this globe tonight, as we sit here, men reject Jesus. They reject his deity, the fact that he is God in the flesh. They reject his doctrine. His doctrine of grace grieves me tonight that even many of our own professing Baptist brethren reject the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God. They reject his death. It sickens me every year near Easter when you see the programs that are are aired on television where men attempt to explain away Jesus and attempt to to, uh, minimize his death and and disprove his resurrection and all these other things. Men reject Jesus, don't they? And we can see the end result of this this rejection in our world today. We see it in abortion. What a horrible thing. Abortion is, 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 I I think, when a society reaches the point where they're aborting babies, they've gotten about as low as they're going to go. Abortion. You know, I looked it up this week, and there are 1.4 million abortions in the United States per year. 1.4 million. By the time I finish this message tonight, 2,400 babies will have been murdered. Where's the justice? Where's the avenger of death? Divorce. The rejection of Christ we see in our society today by divorce. In, in the year 1900, 7.8% of marriages ended in divorce. One in, or eight in every, thousand, every hundred. By 1960, it was 25%. And by 1998, it was 50%. And I couldn't find any current statistics, but I'm sure it's climbed above 50%. Pornography. Rejection of Christ opens the door for things like pornography. Pornography on your very television set. And I'm not talking about on pay-per-view programs. I'm talking about on standard programming. You know, if you, if you really want to know what God thinks about nudity, you ought to study, because God says if... If the thigh is exposed, it's nudity. So the women running around in short shorts and all these things, by God's standard, are running around naked. So we better be careful. But we, we see it all over our television and on the net, internet. And by the way, parents of children, if I were you, I'd educate myself on how to learn where my children have been on the internet. We give children a tool like the internet, and then we back off like it's no big deal, and, and you, ought to, you ought to empower yourself to know where they're going. This rejection of Christ has, has resulted in our nation in, in, in things such as rape. In 2006, there were 212,690 uh, reported rapes in America. And according to the FBI, 59% of all rapes do not get reported. That's 581 rapes per day. Child abuse. In America, in the year 2006, there were 1.25 million cases of child abuse. One in every 58 children in America will be abused in one way or another, physically, sexually. Murder. In 2009, there were 15,241 reported murders in America. 
Five in 100,000. One in every 20,000 people in America were murdered. Homosexuality. Homosexuality in America has gone from being an abomination in the sight of God to being an alternate lifestyle and now is in the Supreme Courts as, as being validated uh, as, as marriage. And the spread of all of this that I've just mentioned is the result of men rejecting Christ. And all of this brings sorrow to the heart of our Savior. I can only imagine tonight what our society would be like if men did not despise Jesus but revered him. I can only imagine what our society would be like tonight if men did not reject him but embrace him. Now, you and I can't change the world, right? We know that. But you and I can change our little corner of the world. We can change our own hearts. And we as God's children, need to learn to revere him and to embrace him in every aspect of our lives. In the garden, we see the the discernment of the Lord and the concern for his children. In in the garden, we see the sorrow on the heart of the Lord for for the suffering that his children will face. But also tonight, thirdly, I want us to see in the garden the sovereignty of God's will. Look with me at verse number 35. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now, concerning this passage of Scripture, there are two positions. Some would argue that Jesus was asking that if it be possible, the cross be taken away from him. Others argue here that Jesus is not praying that the cross be taken from him, but he is praying that he will not suffer an untimely death at his arrest in the garden so that he could fulfill his purpose of the cross. Now, personally tonight, I don't know which is correct. Because God's word doesn't specify. But what God's word does specify is that Jesus knew that God's will was the perfect will for him. What the scripture does specify is that Jesus knew that God's will is sovereign. I don't know how many times I've seen Christians pushing their own will to the forefront in their lives despite the fact that God has done everything he can but come down and say in a most pronounced voice, no. They just don't care. They don't care what the word of God says. They don't care about biblical principles. They don't care about the collective counsel of the leadership in in the church. They just make it happen anyway. And usually with disastrous results. I I heard news just recently of a family that left this church 15 years ago. Now, this family left for the wrong reasons. And I talked with them before they left. And the reasons they were leaving were not the right reasons. 
They place their own desires and their own expectations ahead of God's will and God's work in this place, and they left. And now, 15 years later, they have paid the terrible price of ignoring God's sovereignty and doing their own thing. And it has cost them everything, especially their children's spiritual future. And folks, this is just one story. I could stand here for hours and tell you about family after family after family that ignored the will of God and did what they wanted to do and paid the ultimate price in their lives. But I am sure that all of us understand what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is even when we don't want to obey, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us, God's will is always the perfect will. Remember what Paul told us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He he writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. From this moment in Scripture, from this moment in Jesus' life, I learned that it is not what I want, but what God wants that is best. Let me ask you a question. Does anyone want to suffer the agony of a crucifixion? Do you think any human in his rational mind wants to go through that type of suffering? Of course not. However, Jesus knew and understood the end of the path. He saw the end result of this sacrifice. His heart and his mind was focused on God the Father and his will for the Son. He was not thinking of his own well-being. He was not thinking of his own desires. He was fully given to the sovereign will of God the Father. But tonight, so many of us ignore the word of God. We ignore the, the, the preaching. We ignore the counsel. We ignore everything that God tries to give us in the way of wise counsel. And we do what we want to do because we want to do it. I'm sure Jesus didn't want to suffer the agony he would suffer, but he did it because it was the will of God. He did it because it was the will of the Father. And you and I must do the will of the Lord regardless of what we want or what it costs us. We see the discernment of Jesus in the garden. We see the sorrow of the Lord. We see the sovereignty of God's will. But then as we continue to follow Jesus in this garden, fourthly, I want us to see the apathy of the disciples. Now, we switched from S to A, but that's okay because my last point is A also. I got at least two, so it counts. We see the apathy of the disciples. Look with me at verse number 37, please. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping. And saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? 
Watch ye and pray, lest, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Listen, Jesus knew what Peter was facing. He knew the trial Peter would face. And instead of Peter being watchful and praying, he was asleep. Now, don't miss this. Because just a few hours earlier, Jesus told his disciples that this very night he would be betrayed and arrested and that they would all be offended because of him and would forsake him. In Mark 14, 27, we read, And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And here they are with Jesus in the garden. They see his sorrow. They see his grief. They see his heaviness. How could they not see it? Jesus was sweating drops of blood. And you think Peter said, oh, well, yeah, I did that last week. They saw the suffering of Christ. But they don't seem to be very concerned about it, do they? They don't seem to sense the gravity of this moment. And today, I'm afraid the same is true of many Christians around this world. We just don't seem to sense the gravity of what is happening. Oh, we like going to church. We enjoy singing the songs. We don't mind tithing. These are all great things. But do we sense the gravity of what's happening around us tonight? Do we understand the seriousness of our Christian life? Do we truly understand that everything we are and everything we do is to the glory and honor of God our Father? This is why Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Listen, all you and I have is now. We don't even have tomorrow. Because Solomon said, don't boast of tomorrow, because you don't know what a day is going to bring forth. Folks, I don't have a guarantee of life tomorrow. I don't have a guarantee that I won't have a stroke and die before I finish this message. All I have is right now, this moment. And in this moment... Am I watchful? In this moment, am I living my life to glorify the Father? Or am I living my life to please my own flesh? If we are going to live for Christ, it must be now. Wake up tonight and get busy for God. We just, we just don't seem to be concerned in America with the fact that every day Jesus is despised. And rejected in our world. We, ju we just don't seem to care that every moment of every day we waste opportunities. Opportunities to serve the Lord. Opportunities to be a witness for Christ at work or, or at school. Opportunities uh, to admonish and instruct our children in the principles of God's words. Opportunities to set an example for them by being in church on Sunday, by reading our Bibles, by studying the Word of God, by meditating upon God's Word. Every day, the opportunities we have to pray, the opportunities we have to tithe and offer, the opportunities we have to serve in the local church. 
But just like Peter, James, and John, so many Christians today just curl up in the corner and go to sleep. Oblivious of all the suffering and all the need around them. Content in their own little worlds. And I also want us to notice that Jesus didn't wake them up just once. He woke them up twice. He tried to impress upon them the seriousness of the moment. But look at verse 40 of chapter 14. We read here, And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They probably had too much wine at dinner. Neither wist they what to answer him. Did you see that? They didn't know what to say. They were speechless. Jesus woke them up the second time. They just went, uh, 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 uh. And by the way, while we're sleeping our way through our Christian life, one day soon we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. And may I say, we too are going to be speechless. We're going to have nothing to say. Listen, don't become apathetic like the disciples were. Be alert. Watch and pray as Jesus admonished them to do. That you will be able to resist the devil in your day of testing, in in the time when your troubles visit you. So in the garden, we see the discernment of Jesus and the concern for his people. We see the sorrow of Jesus. We see the sovereignty of the will of God. We see the apathy of the disciples. But then lastly tonight, I want us to see the abandonment of the disciples. The abandonment. Look at verse 50 with me. Verse 50, and they all forsook him and fled. They all ran away. Have you ever been abandoned? It's such a horrible feeling to be abandoned, to be betrayed, to be left all by yourself with no one there with you, no one to No one to stand with you, no one to help you. And you know, as I was preparing this, I was compelled to ask myself, what would cause one to abandon another? So in closing tonight, allow me to share some thoughts with you as to why we as Christians abandon the Lord. First, it's because of fear. We abandon Christ because we're afraid. Now, I'm not going to stand here and and say to you that I would not have been afraid going through this ordeal in the garden. I'm not going to say that. And, And that's because these men knew the cost of being convicted of heresy. It was quite a, that was quite a a terrible price to be paid for heresy. But that aside, these men allowed fear to take control of them. They forgot with whom they were standing. You know, God commanded Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. He said, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Now listen to me. Even if these men were to die that night, they were commanded, as you and I are, to be strong and of a good courage. And just like they, we too often fail in our faithfulness to God because of fear. I've had people tell me, well, I'm I'm just afraid I I, I won't succeed. I'm afraid to fail. Or they come and say, well, you know, I'm afraid of 
persecution from my family, persecution on the job. I'm afraid that if I take a stand for Christ, I'm going to be, I'm going to lose my job or my family's going to turn on me or something such as that. People come to me and say, well, I'm afraid that if I take a stand for Christ, I'm going to lose my family. They're going to leave me. They're going to, they're going to abandon me. Fear. What did God say? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Do not allow fear to dictate your service and your faithfulness to God. But not only does fear cause us to abandon Christ, secondly, doubt. Doubt. I can almost hear the minds of these apostles as they're running away. Well, is this really the Messiah? Maybe we made a mistake. Uh, can it be that the Messiah will, will suffer defeat at the hands of the Romans? Wasn't, wasn't he supposed to come and restore the kingdom to Israel? And I'm sure that their fear drove them into doubt. And their doubt they used to try to justify themselves for abandoning Christ. Men do this all the time. I have people come to me all the time and, and they start giving me all these reasons. And you know what they're looking for? Brother Gary knows this word, validation. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone to say, yeah, you're right. Doubt. Remember this, my friends. There is only one cure for doubt. It's found in scriptures. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, we read, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said it with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Jesus is the only one who can defeat doubt. And here are the disciples running from the source of their assurance. And so do we today. I've seen people battling doubt, yet they forsake the things that can help them gain the confidence in their faith that they need. They forsake church, Sunday school, and, 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 and Bible study. They forsake prayer. They forsake reading the scriptures. I spoke with someone today who's, who's battling, and, and he said, how do, I, how do I fight these battles? And I said, you can't fight spiritual battles with, with worldly means. You have to put on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit. We can only fight these battles. We can only gain the, the confidence and the, and, the, and the assurance we need by, by these things. We, don't need, we shouldn't forsake the things that will strengthen us. Doubt, fear, doubt. Why else do we forsake the Lord? Thirdly, insincerity. Insincerity. Now, by this, I'm referring to a lack of commitment. A lack of commitment. This is at the core of every divorce. This is at the heart of every abortion, every broken relationship. Commitment. Now, what is commitment? Commitment, by definition, is fixity of purpose. Fixity of purpose, being, being determined, determinate. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, we read, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, any coward can quit. 
It takes a person of true character to remain fixed in your cause, to remain faithful to your purpose. Fear leads to doubt. Doubt will rob you of your purpose. And all of this leads you to, lastly, selfishness. Why do we forsake Christ? Selfishness. And this is where we see the disciples in this story. They have forsaken the Lord and have turned all of their attention to the preservation of self. And nothing will lead you into misery faster than selfishness. Selfishness will always cause us to be unhappy. Let me just share some thoughts with you real quickly. No one will ever treat you as well as you think you ought to be treated. Okay? It's not going to happen. Secondly, nothing will ever be able to meet your expectations. No car you ever buy is going to run good enough. They're all going to break down. Nothing is going to meet your expectations. No job will ever bring you complete satisfaction. You know, I I hear people all the time, man, you know, I need this job. This is a great job. And then they get it, and six months later, man, I need another job. That's because no job will ever bring you satisfaction because you always think you deserve better. And, And this one's a big one for all of the married people. Listen, your spouse will never be sensitive enough for you. And they'll never satisfy you completely. So don't look for it. Forget about it. Just love each other and be happy with what you get. Selfishness. Selfishness. And there's only one solution to selfishness. And the solution to selfishness is to live for others. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And this is exactly what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't worry about what was best for him. He thought about the perfection and the sovereignty of God's will. He thought about what was best for you and me by going to the cross. He thought about the weakness of his disciples and he was concerned about their well-being. And thank God, he did not abandon us the way we abandoned him. He stood as a lamb before the slaughter and said not a word in his defense. He suffered, he bled, He died, and hallelujah to the Lord, he rose again, all according to the Father's will. Praise his holy name. We've strolled through the garden with Jesus tonight. And I hope that you've been inspired, and I I hope you've been blessed as we spent this, this half hour or so in the garden with our Savior. I hope you've been challenged by this time. Challenge to leave this place tonight and to live your life, every moment of your life, for God's glory. Let us pray. Our Father, we do praise you tonight. And Lord, there are so many things we see as we walk through the garden with Jesus. And, and Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm so 
I'm, I'm just so humbled when I, I look at how concerned, even though Jesus was facing the agony and the horror of the cross, he was concerned for his, for his disciples. He was concerned for his children. Lord, I wish we were that concerned for you and for your will tonight. But we fall so short. We're just so selfish, Lord. Even, even though we don't think we are, we are so selfish. None of us in this room, Father, could make the commitment. None of us could, could stay true to the will of God the way you did in the Garden of Eden. Father, I cry to you tonight as that humble man in Mark chapter 9 did. Father, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. Strengthen me tonight. Holy Spirit, enlighten us and give us the courage and the strength to do the things we must do, regardless of the consequences. Obeying the sovereign will of God, glorifying God with our lives, living our life for Christ. Thank you for this time. I pray that it would have been valuable to us. I pray it would have been profitable to us in our, in our souls. And I ask you to bless all that was done. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you and give you all the glory for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.